While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. start to become the show right i mean that wasn't the, that wasn't the thing but i would when i was editing <laughs> the choose your own adventure thing and i was i was actually listening to it always a good idea sometimes sometimes when we just go and we don't have any big pauses or anything i'll just like slap the intro on slap the end music on and export and then i'm done like i don't <laughs> worry that much about we're that much about cleaning up. Yeah, real high quality like the, stuff the that we're pumping out into the internet and here. Things. So yeah, you guys get to hear all that stuff. Dirty podcast. But when dirty, dirty when edits. when the the me who is listening to the show either wants to interject something <laughs> and like and podcast me says it, <laughs> or when when recording me and podcast me laugh at the same or like editing me and, and recording me laugh at the same time at the same thing that's satisfying which which happened a lot at the, the <laughs> weird voices and stuff yeah there was like a week between recording and editing and so i kept like finding myself wanting to say stuff that i then said so good job good job good job andrew welcome to overdue a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is Andrew. And I am also Craig, the man editing the podcast that I'm recording. I exist no, you're not. I exist not yet. in multiple layers of reality. That guy only exists in the future. That's a weird That guy only exists Wait. on Sunday at eleven forty five. That's a PM. weird thing to think about. Sometimes he exists on Monday at seven in the morning Eastern time. Sure, sure. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's weird to think that way at all. Past Andrew is always screwing now Andrew over. (laughs) I think we've talked about this. Which I think is like a Seinfeld bit or something, but. Independent Andrew? No, I think about different versions of myself all the time. And we all like, we all regard each other with, with some disdain, but like not enough to change our behaviors. So present Andrew is never, he never becomes a better version of past Andrew. <laughs> no. Past Andrew always sucks. Like he doesn't change. <laughs> and future He's Andrew always a, is always yeah. going to be the best Andrew. He's Yeah, all- <laughs> because that's that's the version of myself that's going to get everything done that I said I was going to get done. It's going to be great. Future Craig is always going to get more sleep. And it's funny because present Craig is always tired. <laughs> I don't even think that future Andrew's going to get more sleep. I just think like future Andrew will be less bothered <laughs> by getting the amount of sleep that present Andrew is going to get. <laughs> and past Andrew is uh, past Craig is still up. He's he's still up from the night before. He's just fallen into the void. Yeah. Great. Let's talk about books. What do we do? What's the deal? What do we do on this What's show, Andrew? Airplanes. What? what? Oh, um, tell old Seinfeld <laughs> jokes. <laughs> Right, uh, men 
hunt and women nest. That's an old Seinfeld joke. Yeah, there you go. He's talking about um, tra- changing channels on that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Signals, Jerry. <laughs> Signals. Levels, Jerry. Levels. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can keep this in or this all I don't, is- this note, note to future Craig. You you do whatever you want with this little Okay, this little Andrew. Future Craig also like took a James Earl Jones class. He didn't get an A, but he changed him forever. Was it... <laughs> Like, was it introduction to James Earl Jones? Was it remedial James Earl Jones? Like what level of class? <laughs> they wanted to call it. Are you taking? They wanted to call it remedial James Earl Jones, but they almost had a lawsuit because it sounded so terrible. So they had to <laughs> just cop to it being James Earl Jones 101. Because once you get up to like JEJ 301, like that's the well, official that's, code that's when, in the in the yeah course guy I and mean, that's when they finally <laughs> let you watch the sandlot it's it's uh it's a real high level <laughs> you're just working up to the sandlot <laughs> the whole time uh so what do we do on this show again uh read books eventually and then talk about them oh we talk about them that's why we're here yes okay what if we just, what if we just recorded us reading books <laughs> That's what we did last week. Be, Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't I don't mean like reading them aloud. I mean just reading them silently to ourselves. <laughs> just oh, this is going to be the turning of pages, show. the like the touching of a finger against a phone as one of us reads on our phone. Yeah. My coffee's ready. I got to get great. up and go get it and that'll be all mm-hmm. the sound that you hear. I'm sure someone tuned into this thinking we were going to talk about Luigi Pirandello. I think someone must have probably. Luigi Pirandello, <laughs> who's that? And what book did he write that you read? Uh, Luigi Pirandello is an Italian playwright from the 19th century, and he died in the early 20th century. And he wrote a play called Six Characters in Search of an Author. I don't know what the Italian name of that play is, and I wouldn't know how to pronounce it if I could. Cool. So we're calling it that. Six Characters in Search of an Author. And so when I was one character in search of information about Luigi Pirandello. Oh, no. I Um, yeah, he's a dramatist, novelist, poet, um, Nobel Prize winner. Nobel Prize winner. I, he okay. He had a dad named Stefano. Yep. Who owned a sulfur mine. Uh huh. Who that 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 he Luigi sometimes worked in, and um, so um, after after a bout of loving his cousin like you do, Luigi. Wait. What married. This he he fell in love with his cousin for a while, and his and her family was not into it. But then they like came around. <laughs> but then the marriage never happened because he was um, he was like working on his schooling and working down the sulfur mines with his dad. So God, working in those sulfur it, mines, it fell apart. Working those sulfur mines. Yeah. Okay. Um. So okay. So his mar- his proposed marriage to his cousin fell apart, which is really too bad. Uh, he married this woman <laughs> named uh, Antonetta. Portulano, Portulano. Yep, sounds good. And um, so, you know, he he married her in 1894. It was pretty happy. Um, his a bunch of his money and a bunch of her dowry and just a bunch of the family's money was wrapped up in the sulfur mine. 
because you gotta spend money to make money. And he's when like you're mining software. Yeah, and he's like writing poems and selling them, and he's writing one act plays and books and stuff. Right? Oh yeah, this this whole time while the tragedy of his life is unfurling, he's writing and steadily getting more recognition and stuff, which maybe maybe you paid more attention to than than I did. But as you pointed out to me, there is a whole section on his Wikipedia page <laughs> just titled "Family Disaster." Oh, no. <laughs> so in 1903, the sulfur mine floods. And it takes most of their money with it. And his wife, upon getting the news, kind of has a mental breakdown. And she, her, her mental state sort of deteriorates over the next like decade and a half. Um, by 1919, he has to put her in an asylum, which she never comes out of, uh, which he is not a big fan of because he's still like attracted to her, even though she had become like erratic and, and violent. Yeah, like physically violent to him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that was the, that was most of what I pay attention to about him was just like this really tragic arc, like and and he's all the while writing these these works that often like sometimes they reflect his experiences and things, but he's still writing like comedies and all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, like during the time when all this misfortune is happening to him. Yeah, he eventually like had her placed in an asylum. Um, yeah, I said that. Oh, sorry, you you did say that. <laughs> sorry, no, because I was just thinking like he he can have you place in the asylum. <laughs> I'm in search of what you just said, uh, and I mean that seemed to prove pretty traumatic to him late in his life, uh, and yeah, kind of he's like you said he was dealing with themes uh, from his life, but still trying to write popular work, and he was getting acclaim for them. Uh, some of the things that we'll talk about that he explores in six characters, uh, I think were reflected in some of his earlier plays as kind of like madness. Like he's got this kind of non literal reality happening in six characters, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about. And he, that's not the only work in which he does that, but this is one of the, usually it's because a character is like crazy or a character is unhinged or something like that. Um, right. I don't know anything about it, but he did write a write a uh, what is it a, a novella called Pensaki Giacomino, and this translation calls it "Think It Over, Giacomino," which I think is a <laughs> great name for anything. Uh, I just wanted to point that out. But yeah, I just I think it's it's kind of interesting that he was doing well, um, like financially and um, and like. famous yeah like with respect to his fame (laughs) and reputation yeah because a lot of the times we'll we'll read about these writers like edgar Allan poe or whoever who had these short kind of brutal little lives Mm -hmm. that just i I would not want to be the person living them Mm. fair and also their careers were not great and they only came into fame like after they died. So yeah, like Herman Melville was like that. Poe was like that. We've read, read a couple others and I, I, I just feel if I feel like it's not common to have somebody who is both famous during his lifetime, but also had so much bad stuff happen. To yeah. Him. Oh, it's also, I wonder if part of it has to do with, he, you know, he had success as a novelist, but he also had, plenty of success as a playwright. Um, and I just wonder if by nature of his work being more public, we have more of it. And so he was 
you know, the reason we have it is because it was successful rather than like the myriad playwrights that probably had crappy little lives or didn't or had totally fine little lives but were <laughs> but were never famous and so we don't have their stuff whereas like an author can publish something and then it gets put on a shelf some like plays don't get that until they've been produced enough that someone goes and looks them up later so you're saying Melville should have done Moby Dick the play I mean I don't know if he needed to we're still reading Moby Moby Dick the Moby Dick, the stage musical. Well, because he he was not famous. Moby Dick, Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. Where are you, Moby Dick? It's my. <laughs> oh no, I'm dead. <laughs> Except everybody's dead but me. <laughs> We're gonna be appearing in an off, 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 off Broadway show. Of Moby Dick the Musical, uh, twenty nineteen. Be there. Two characters <laughs> in search of Moby Dick. Um, I guess we'll talk about this play now. I don't know. That's yes, that's the me. next part of the show, right? We got Luigi. We down. got Luigi down. Now what did he write? Yeah, we covered everything about him. That part where he tried to marry his cousin and then his wife went crazy. We got it all. That's it. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Yep. Nailed it. All right. So the play was written. In 1921, uh, I think it's useful to think about uh, the drama of the time that I think you might have the easiest access to is we're not far away from our town. How about that? Our town's later okay. than this, but it's not uh, too far removed. And the reason I bring mm-hmm. our town up is actually that was my access point into this play. We, you know, we studied our town in high school. And then I was at a phase of my life where I was just randomly going to a bookstore and buying plays. So I bought this play because it seemed weird. Um, <laughs> and the reason it's weird is because, it oh, it takes place in a theater. And it takes place in this elaborate uh, Italian theater that is, you know, very classical, very like the Broadway of its time. It's a big music hall and, you know, it's very ornate and the artifice is almost like palpable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the play begins with a technician installing a piece of scenery, like nailing it to the floor. And then the stage manager comes on and says, no, take that away. It's time to rehearse. Uh, so if you're in the audience and you didn't know that this is what the play was about, I don't know what you would think was going on. <laughs> uh, that's one of those things that like now is almost a cliche the show about a show that's happening uh but yeah yeah like story of this story of this podcast is that we end up reading the things that inspire decades slash centuries of cliche and and trope to the point where now if mm-hmm. you do them you better do it either really well or do something really cool with it uh but at the time this is obviously revolutionary uh mm-hmm. so the stage manager comes out. I'm just going to dive right in the plot. Is that cool? Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Do it, and then whenever it's convenient, I'll start asking about who the six characters we'll are. We'll get this. there. Come on. All right. So there's all, all right. these actors and whatever milling around. Uh, the stage manager says, "We got to rehearse," and all the actors show up. And this is something that kind of, uh, kind of does happen in the real world. Uh, as some of you know, I work in theater in Philadelphia, and there's some. F- like colleagues of mine who listen to the show, so I'm going to try not and put 
performers on specific blast but actors always want to perform even when you're not asking them to so like if they're all just sitting around and someone has a musical instrument someone's going to start playing it and someone's going to start singing and someone's going to start dancing and they're just going to waste a bunch of time because actors man actors right like i i don't work with anybody so i'm gonna put everybody on blast like it's like I mean we we both went to the same college and there is I mean I think this this is true of most a cappella groups but there's one in particular <laughs> where if you get like any two of them in the same room they'll just become a tr- they will just be drawn toward one another and then start singing. yes and there's yeah there's whatever it is that's in them that drew them to be an actor in the first place like they can't turn it off yeah and it was actually i was i was rereading this moment today and i was re- i th- honestly i thought of charlie brown christmas i thought of the part where charlie brown's like music <laughs> please and the charlie music starts christmas. playing and everyone just starts doing whatever the hell they want because they're having a good time uh mm. so that's what's going on Charlie Brown music is playing at the top of this play, and all the actors are dancing around. That's great. Uh, and the director comes in. He goes, "Stop it, everybody! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it!" Uh, no, Snoopy, stop it! He says. Uh, and the director is—he's wearing a bowler hat, and he's smoking a cigar, and he has a walking stick. So he's basically just me. Like he's basically just looks like me <laughs> okay. when I walk into rehearsal. <laughs> Uh, sure with your walking stick uh-huh, and your bowler and hat. my cigar uh, and they they get ready to start rehearsal for what is the play it's called it's actually a Pirandello play Andrew they're rehearsing a play Ooh. called the game of role playing by Luigi Pirandello hmm. my goodness gracious Weird. is that a real Pirandello play uh, I believe it is okay I could be wrong, but I'm just going to keep going as if I was right. So, okay. What's the wait? What's the name of it? The game of role playing. You just keep okay. going. I'm going to do some reconnaissance. Great, over thanks. Here. So, guess who's late? They can't start rehearsal. Guess who's late, Andrew? I'm just, the Game of Thrones role playing game is what Google <laughs> thinks I'm trying to look up. <laughs> Wait, who's late? Is it the characters? Is it the actors? Uh, the lead actress is late. Um, I'm looking right n- typical. I'm looking right now. Pirandello wrote a play called "The Rules of the Game." Perhaps that's what this translation is referring to. I can't find if it's real. Okay, or not. I might. I may need to be looking for an Italian name that yeah, I don't know. Me so. neither. So, uh, the leading actress is late, just like a leading lady. She's late, and she brought her dog to rehearsal. And this is, so she's got to hand her dog to the stage manager, and the stage manager's got to put the dog in the dressing room. You know, all sorts of aren't actors the worst stuff going on. I feel like we should point out that this this is obviously like a stereotype and we don't necessarily think that all actresses are like terminally late and like terminally late dog havers. (laughs) No, that's not a personal belief of ours. No, but it's it's you can even tell that in the way the play is presenting it. It's a stereotype and a cliche. Like sure, yeah, the yeah, character yeah. leading okay. lady doesn't have a name. Her character's name is leading lady. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, and there's also this thing that uh, when I say thing, I mean person who is called the prompter who sits in the prompter's box and they have like a little, 
like room with a chair that they sit in center stage, which is totally not a thing that exists in the theater anymore, but used to. Uh, and they read like the stage directions during rehearsal and, you know, have the script in front of them the whole time. Uh, so, hmm. And the director is not even what you would normally think of as a modern theater director. He's uh, at this time, he's more of like an actor manager where there was like a long tradition of the leading actor in the company kind of, you know, you can think trace this all the way back to just after Shakespeare's time would kind of be in charge of what was happening on stage. And this is the beginning of what we think of as like the traditional role of the director today. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's like the impresario, right? And he's trying to rehearse this terrible play, this terrible Pirandello play. So all of all, you know, if you're watching this play and all of a sudden the playwright's like, oh, these people are putting on a terrible play of mine. Like you should know that something is up. Right, so or you should just leave and beat the beat <laughs> that's the rush. also possible, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then these characters enter, like the in, the rehearsal is interrupted. Wait, how many of them? Are you kidding? <laughs> I just want to make All sure right. how many. Characters? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six characters. Okay, okay. Cool. Six characters walk in, and they interrupt the rehearsal. And they come in through, like, the audience. And they walk right up to the director. And there's a father. There's a mother. There's a stepdaughter. There's a son. There's a boy. And there's, like, a little girl. And Pirandello, or at least this translation of him, is very specific that the characters... Um, do not get confused with the actors of the company. They shouldn't appear to be like, you know, real people. The phrase this translation by Eric Bentley uses is that they are unchanging constructs of the imagination and therefore more solidly real than the actors with their fluid naturalness. Okay. So all the characters okay. all the characters are wearing masks that allow them to speak and you can see their eyes through them but the masks like fix their expression um almost you know post greek you know tragic tragedy comedy masks but almost kind of italian commedia dell'arte masks which are kind of yeah, stuck I'm, I'm finding myself wondering how you would direct this like how you would how you would make that difference between these characters and the other people on the stage like different visually in a way that the audience could pick up you know without having to read the read the play itself yeah so i i mean even just in having read the script i don't know if you yeah i don't know if you think about that stuff when you read a play like as a yes i do i don't know if that's okay cool (laughs) um it's it's funny i was actually i was in a class today where we were going over uh some people's scripts that they had written and a lot of what they're writing is from personal experience so they're very concerned with what the characters are saying and i constantly find myself thinking about like well what are these what space do these people occupy like what do they look like when they're doing whatever they're doing and if i can't tell then the play might actually be missing something um Mm -hmm. because it doesn't immediately jump to mind like where they are or what they look like i have a really good mental image of what this theater might be and these people walking in with these kind of frozen expressions that are acting a little bit bigger than normal people quote unquote you know their emotions are right there they have full access to them 
um, but they're also kind of stuck in their particular emotions. And Pirandello like tells you that in the script. He says that the father is a being of remorse, the mother one of grief, the son one of disdain, and the stepdaughter one of revenge. So sure. if you are designing the costumes for this play, you are creating some sort of mask that still looks like a person, but you put it on someone's face and that is their emotion for the rest of the play, you know? Yeah. And I guess you would like what, have their movements be super exaggerated or something to, to like drive this whole, if you wanted like fakey character thing home. I don't know. Like maybe, maybe the visual of them wearing a mask is going to do it by itself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would think you might do it with a uh, costume. Um, I don't know if you need to do it with movement. You could. There's certainly theatrical tradition sure. to it because these are clearly drawn from this idea anyway builds upon centuries of uh, the Commedia dell'arte, which we've talked a little bit about in our Moliere episodes where you have you know, the zany clown, you have the servant cl- characters, you have the ingenue lover characters, you have the old miser characters. Uh, and the beauty of that from an Italian playwriting perspective is that you don't need to explain who those characters are. You put that costume on, you put that mask on, and the audience knows exactly who's going to do what. And that's kind of... Sure, It's sure. the archetypes that you see on sitcoms today, you know. Okay. Um, like, there's always a yeah, Ross. Yeah, there's, oh, there's knows always who the Ross a Ross. Is. And could there ever be <laughs> more of a Chandler? Um, <laughs> how you doing? How you... <laughs> Smelly cat. So these six, smelly so these six cat. characters. What are they <laughs> feeding these, you? These six characters, all of whom correspond to an individual member of the cast of Friends, I assume. Yes. Come out on stage and then what? They happens? demand, well, they don't demand, I guess, um, but they literally, the first thing that any of them says, the father says, We're here in search of an author. And the director's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and and they basically, they say, well, what if you're our author? And their point being that they are carrying around the painful drama of their lives as characters. And they want to tell their story on stage, I think in hopes of finishing the drama. It's, that's, that's not explicitly clear. And I don't think Pirandello intends for it to be as clear as I might want it. I would have to make a choice if I were going to do the play, but they want their story told. Cool. Uh, And meanwhile, Mm -hmm. the actors are like, what is happening? Where are these people coming from? Why are they, you know, telling us what, what it is to do our jobs? Uh, And the director is more and more getting sucked into wanting to tell their story and thinking it might make for a good play. Because uh, he's already spent several pages talking about how all the plays he's producing are trash. <clears throat> Pirandello making a joke at himself. <laughs> uh, and that the actors are the only things keeping the theater open right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very quickly, the characters try to sum up what their lives are to these people. Now, they don't give each other, you know, none of them have names. Um they seem to kind of come from nowhere uh, and they don't seem to like they have a past, but it's very unspecific. Um, The father and the mother 
got separated at one point. She left him after they had the son, who's in his 20s. She Mm -hmm. married someone else who has since died and had three kids. The stepdaughter, who's now 18, uh, and the little boy, who I think is around 10, and the girl who's younger than him. And several years after the man died, uh, the mother brought her three new kids home to live with the father. And then the son, who was sent away when he was an infant to go live with another family because the father didn't think that his mother was fit to raise him, uh, he comes home and kind of hates that these other people are there trying to be part of his family. If that's not confusing... Um, then I didn't tell it right because it's definitely confusing in the play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pirandello had father issues, which which I I which may be coming out here sure. at some point because he he found out um, in his late adolescence or early adulthood that his dad was stepping out on his mom, okay. and I think that that made him. Grow closer to his mother and and lose a lot of respect for his father. So, I don't know. Like like between that and and the fact that Pirandello himself like went abroad for a while, did a lot of studying abroad, left his family, and then and then came back. Like there there's probably something there. Which if I knew more about him or his family, I could probably draw a better link. But <laughs> something in the sun. I'm just trying to yeah. find that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to find that element of his life that's in this play because it seems like he did that a lot. And how could you not? Yeah, I would. With his life. <laughs> would th- why he didn't just churn out like 20 books about salt mines or sulfur mines or whatever, I have no idea. Um, but anyway, so these these characters have shown up and, you know, demand that their story be authored into a play. Uh, and there's this tension between the way that the director and the rest of the actors think about how to create theater and what these characters believe to be their true experience. Um, Anytime that it's kind of put forth that the actors might portray the characters later, the characters kind of laugh at them and say, well, you could never get it right, you idiot. I wouldn't look like that. I wouldn't, they they would never know how I act. Uh, So they're all the time kind of lobbying to play their own roles which is this interesting at the time i don't know that there was as much drama that built on this model but in the past you know 50 60 years there's been a lot of autobiographical theater or kind of journalistic theater where you're you're making plays out of real people uh and there's this weird kind of philosophical disconnect between the actual subject and what it takes to tell a good story on stage which this mm-hmm. play seems to kind of revisit a lot. Uh, so after they tell their whole story about how um, the family broke up and then it came back together after an incident involving the stepdaughter and the father, which we'll get to in just a second, uh, the boy dies and the girl dies. Now, they don't actually die on stage. They they kind of just say that that is part of their story. That this will happen. This is part of their drama, right? But do they exist, like... Oh, they're there in the room. Outside of time a little bit? Like it, Yes, it's, they are not real people. Like, there is this... 
there's this thing that they they do it, but they're still there, like to tell you that that's what happened. Well, and I think right now they have never acted it out. It's just it's their story. Does that make sense? It's like this okay. weird. It's not sure. a literal thing. They, I, I am get, I get it in my head, but I don't know how <laughs> to convey it to other people. And so. that's kind of the. I hope you're all in the same. Sure, <laughs> and I and I think that's fair because that that conflict is certainly part of the play. Like the director doesn't quite get it, the actors don't quite get it, and the first time where it's really clear that something fishy is going on, they start talking about this scene, which later gets acted out in the play, where the stepdaughter was working for this woman, Madame Pace or Madame. Pache, but let's call her Madame Pace. What do you think if if this is like a high drama story, Andrew? What do you who do you think Madame Pace is? Madame Pace. Yeah. Like if it's something nefarious she, with the stepdaughter, who do you think Madame Pace might be? The stepmother? No. What do you think she does? Um where, the, where do you think she works? The the the, the stepmother factory she works she runs madam pace runs a whorehouse andrew okay yeah you got you got help sorry about that so i'm just trying to make it a little more interactive make the show a little no you just you just assume that i would make a logical leap that i was obviously (laughs) not ready to do (laughs) so uh that one's on you I uh, i guess so so they're the crux of the story between the stepdaughter and the father is that the stepdaughter was working for Madame Pace and the father came in, and this is before his family became reunited, so he came in to pay for sex and he tried to pay for sex with her. And he, you know, has been claiming that he did not know it was her, but he obviously still feels really guilty about it and the stepdaughter claims that he, you know, knew wholeheartedly that it was her and that he was doing something terrible on purpose. So, and the mother is, you know, beyond all upset about it. So that is the their main conflict. And to enact this scene, they they decide that they need Madame Pace on stage, but she's not one of the six characters, right? So, okay. The father says, "Everyone on stage, give me your hats. All the ladies, give me your hats. Give me your coats and scarves." And he puts him on a coat rack. And then literally, like, they summon a woman out of thin air. And this crazy, like, half Spanish, half English woman comes in. And it's Madame Pace. And, like, summoned out of nowhere. She comes in through the back door of the theater. And, like, literally everyone runs away from the stage because they're terrified. And then they come back because it's so weird. What is happening? Yeah, so... (laughs) it's really nuts and then she like speaks this weird like broken spanish english that everyone kind of makes fun of and it's it's really bizarre um so then (laughs) because the play continues i guess it just keeps keeps uh, going she leaves after they've done their bit with her and they try to literally act out the scene between the father and the stepdaughter and First, the characters do it um, a little bit. Then the director has the actors try and do it. And then we have this moment where the characters are really unsatisfied with how the actors are doing it and they're laughing at them. And 
there there's this whole debate about what is reality and what is illusion. Uh, I'm going to try and find uh, the quote for the exchange for you. Um, okay. So they're they're talking about the scenery and how the actors aren't getting it right and they say well we can't the director says we can't change the scenery in view of the audience three or four times in one act nor can we stick up signs uh and the leading man says well they used to and the director says well when the audiences were about as mature as that little girl and the leading lady says they got sick burn sick burn uh and the leading lady (laughs) says they got the illusion more easily and the father says the illusion don't say illusion don't use that word it's especially cruel to us uh you should understand that and the director says what word would you have us use the illusion of creating here for our spectators the illusion of a reality and the father says i understand but perhaps you do not understand us for you and for your actors, all of this is a game. The game of your art, which, as this gentleman rightly says, must provide a perfect illusion of reality. But consider this. We have no reality outside this illusion. And then the director says, and that means? <laughs> which is pretty good. Um, so the, the characters exist only in the illusion that is their story. They don't have anything other than their story. Okay. And the argument then becomes, how do people who are quote-unquote real enact this drama, or can they? And and there is this tension because, like, when you make theater, you want there to be a certain amount of... or I don't want to generalize like that because there's plenty of theater where this is not the goal... But especially at this time, around turn, turn of the 20th century, uh, especially in the Western world, you had like, Ibsen and Chekhov and people who, despite some kind of flights of fancy, were producing really realistic characters on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is often a, a very high praise for theater, right? And it's certainly a high praise when you, when you see film. Like, oh, I really believed that that guy was going through that. I really, that totally looked real that that happened to him. You know, yeah, like it's. I don't know if it's so much real, but like it doesn't need to feel literally real, but you do need to feel something real for those people. So even if, even if the play or the movie or whatever is taking place in some kind of heightened reality, mm-hmm. like there still needs to be something identifiably and like relatably human about what's going on. Yes. And and so, the characters yeah. are sort of arguing that uh, they're they're more human because their feelings are more all encompassing and they don't have anything else going on. Like their feelings are quote unquote truer. They're purer. Their situation is purer because it's unbound by any other reality. If that makes mm. sense, it's. I was reading an article, kind of, yeah, to the extent that anything is making sense. Anymore. I know, <laughs> I know. Are we? We are not even in. We're in search of a podcast right now. Um, I was reading actually an interesting <laughs> two idiots in search of a podcast. <laughs> it's about two years ago, if you ask me. Um, the uh, <laughs> there's a pretty good article in the Harvard Crimson of all things from several years ago that I found where 
the author was comparing uh, this play with another more modern play called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, which is a, a Chicago-based like performance collective that wrote a bunch of short plays. But anyway, nonetheless, um, he kind of points out that it's hard, like theater and, and drama in general often is at odds with philosophical concepts because it's hard to make those active, right? It's hard to like mm-hmm. make the just debates about the nature of man or whatever um, or reality kind of active. And every once in a while it does happen though, right? And And even going back all the way to the Greeks, you have philosophers who discuss philosophical concepts through dialogue through like two characters talking to one another like that goes back to Plato and so what Pirandello's done really well here is actually like by creating these otherworldly characters that aren't bound by being real people they can have this argument about what is real and what is realer and what is illusion or what is like in your attempt to create reality on stage, you're actually just creating a more perfect illusion, you know? And these characters Mm -hmm. are very invested personally in this argument. Like, the director is defending his livelihood and his art form, and the characters are trying to defend their experience, you know? Um, It's really fascinating. I don't know. You you seem unfascinated or troubled or... No, I mean, it's not that I'm not fascinated. I just don't know, like... I don't know, like do, do these characters find their find what they're looking for like what is the resolution in this in this play is there any like what how's it how's it end i guess okay i'll tell you how it ends then i want to come back to something that actually relates to what we were saying uh at the beginning of the podcast so okay they move on from that scene at the brothel or you know implied brothel and actually i will cop to maybe this being a fault of the translation but i have a, i had a little hard time picking up on that actually being what happened until they actually got to the part where they were playing the scene the language was a little obtuse but mm-hmm. um they uh they then moved to this scene at the home by it's outside in the garden there's this fountain and the sun may or may not have had this argument with his mother. He claims that it didn't happen. And he goes out to the fountain and he sees the little girl in the fountain. And he goes in to maybe try and save her, but it turns out she is drowned. And then he sees the boy watching it from behind a tree. And then all of a sudden a gunshot goes off. And then everyone in the in the theater, like actors included, this is like happening in front of all of them, are freaking out and they don't know if it's real or not and they're whisking this boy away as if he's been wounded and no one knows if anything is happening that's real or, or faked or acted or whatever uh, and everyone just kind of flees the stage. This giant backdrop comes down and you're supposed to see the four main characters, not the little girl and the boy, like in silhouette with some weird green light and then that goes away and then the director questioning whether or not any of what just happened happened uh kind of then just bemoans that he lost a day of work of rehearsal 
uh, and asks the electrician to turn off the lights. <laughs> and I'm sure that like that you can invest. Well, that was a yeah. lot. You guys all wasted your time. Like, I'm sure you can invest more in that ending. Um, like all the actors are saying like fiction, fiction. One doesn't believe in such things. And this other actors are yelling fiction, reality. He is dead. No fiction. And it's like people yelling those words back and forth. Uh, and then he may or may not the, the director himself have like a moment of like what the heck just happened before he decides that he can't fathom it. So he's not going to find out, uh, Mm-hmm. And then, actually, excuse me, that then we see the silhouettes of those characters uh, as if they kind of live in that theater, perhaps. Uh, and then the stepdaughter is supposed to run away out through the audience laughing. And then it ends. So maybe that boy died. Maybe that's the end of their story. Maybe she got but, away. Like he's just a he's just a character, so does it? But doesn't it matter doesn't because matter? he's a little boy? Uh, uh, yeah, right. Ugh. What is he in a nationwide commercial? Oh, don't even start! Jeez. Don't even start! <laughs> uh, That's like one of two Super Bowl references that I can make. <laughs> if it's about sharks or nationwide kid, I might as well have been watching the big game. Okay, fair enough. The pigskin classic, as they call it. The big it. game classic? Pigskin The pigskin. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I don't... I don't... What was your, like, gut reaction to this when you finished it, I guess, is my, my question. Because I, I don't... Maybe I would feel better if I'd read it myself, but right now I'm kind of left wondering like what just happened i did have a sense of what just happened that that was my immediate reaction um and then it became what of what are the when, when a story like that ends for me like a what just happened then i start to try to unpack the like well then what are the implications of what just happened because i might not be able okay. to i might not be able to understand exactly what went down and that's kind of the point it seems uh Mm -hmm. but then i feel like it's my job as the audience member if i want to get anything out of what i just experienced i need to start thinking about what it means and i don't know that i've solved it you know i've only read it once and i didn't read it with any eye towards staging it uh sure but i think there's the, the like the argument between when you're trying to create something or create a representation of something, are you ever capable of accurately representing that thing or by the very act of representing it, you're, you know, sullying it or getting it wrong? Um, Or is that irrelevant? Because as long as you produce the effect in your viewer or reader or audience, did you achieve your aim? Or even if you produce like an effect, like the, the the whole thing with with plays and with drama in general is there. There are so many layers of artistic like expression or like authorial expression, even because you have the words that were written by the person who wrote it. You have what the director chooses to do with it, plus you know by proxy like what all the 
you know, what all the staging directions are and what the lighting is like and what the sound is like. And then you have however the actors chose to interpret their roles. And then at the end there, you have what the audience member takes away from it, which may or may not be what you intended them to take away from it. Oh, you have no control <laughs> over that. And yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Like you can, you can try to elicit something, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, oh that's, that is that's... my daily trade, my friend. <laughs> is that, <laughs> is that like that foggy, murky muddy middle ground between that thing that i intended when i first read the script and the thing that you're saying when you get up from the seat at the end of the play like there's so many things in between there you won't go get get (laughs) (laughs) what can we also just recognize that instead of actually listening to what you just said i just started repeating it i don't know what just happened I, am I a real person? I don't know. You're just a character in search of a, a hamburger, a triple bacon a, a cheeseburger, in search of a square hamburger, um, a baconator. Yeah, it, it is really an interestingly one of the things that whenever I'm teaching theater, I say it's part of the beautiful thing of theater is how wonderfully collaborative an art form it is. Blah, 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 blah. Is that your theater voice? Yeah, that's that I that only I only to, like, teach in that voice. <laughs> uh, Hey guys. hey guys, we're going to do some acting today. Everybody shake out the sillies and uh, we're going to talk about <laughs> what it is to be a character. So uh, start <laughs> walking on your toes and uh, blow your lips like this. <laughs> and uh, bazing, bazing, bazinga, bazinga, boom, hey. boom, boom, bazinga, badoom. Everybody, everybody get in. Let's do a backup, a back rub train, everybody. <laughs> Is that your, Steve, you're at the is back. That your idea of acting classes, back rub trains. Yeah, you got <laughs> just to foster a sense of camaraderie among the cast. This time, let's. I would be a pretty good. This director. time, get the technicians over. They can become part of the train. That's always the. That's the moment that I love. Is uh, the like, hey, cast. Like, let's welcome the welcome the crew on over. Try to be friends with the crew. They make you look good. Do it. Well, and they they have these, these like strong the strong hands of a worker too. So they're gonna be really good at back. Yes, rubs. they are. You better get that that a uh, fly man. My God, God, I don't know what fly I'm saying. Man? The guy who runs the fly rail, the union about? fly rail guy, <laughs> to come on over and give you a big brother massage. Well, no, he can't do back rubs because because unions union dues. <laughs> He's only allowed to give uh, back rubs to right shoulders. That's his specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, he's crossing mm-hmm. a picket line if he touches your left shoulder. Uh, yeah, scab, scab, you back you rub, back scab. <laughs> uh, right, what are we? I don't know what we're about talking about. Anymore? So we're talking about what's the takeaway from the six characters and a and a baby or whatever. It's okay, called? Uh, Steve Goomberg's not in this play. Uh, okay so here's the takeaway i'm going to read a section but i want to tell you why i think it's important uh it is the tension between like i said before the tension between representing something and whether or not you can ever actually know what that thing is so in this case you have these characters who were maybe written for a play that pirandello tried to create and he said screw it i'm going to write this play about how i can't do anything with these characters Uh, And could I ever represent their stories on stage? So there's a speech from the father where he talks about whether or not we can ever know how another person's feeling and how words are inadequate for that. Here we go. 
But that's the whole root of the evil, words. Each of us has inside him a world of things, to everyone his world of things. And how can we understand each other, sir, if in the words I speak, I put the sense and value of things as they are inside me, whereas the man who hears them inevitably receives them in the sense and with the value they have for him, the sense and value of the world inside him. We think we understand each other, but we never do. Consider the compassion. All the compassion I feel for this woman, he indicates the mother, has been received by her as the most ferocious of cruelties. So, Pirandello, I think, is drawing a, a line between how artists try to represent things on stage and how we try to interpret each other in life. You know, like I think when we were when we got lost in my weird theater teacher voice, I was trying to go down <laughs> I was trying to go down a path that led to the fact that by nature of it being people in a room interacting with with each other telling a story, theater is one of the oldest art forms because it is just behavior, you know. It is people behaving together in front of other people. Uh mm-hmm. so the the interplay there is not very different from you and me talking right now. And like, if you want to get all high and like hoity toity about it, like you and me talking right now is different because we know that in about six days, I'm going to post it on the internet. Like there's a performative element to it. So this is not the conversation that you and I would have about this book. If we were just drinking a beer in my living room, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Maybe we wouldn't even be talking about it because we wouldn't be doing it for the podcast. You'd be like, Craig, stop telling me about that weird play. Let's play <laughs> Craig, Smash Brothers. I don't care about Luigi, whatever. I want to be Luigi in Smash Brothers. Stop it. <laughs> uh, so I, Well, even, even what's going to get posted on the internet in six days is not going to be the exact conversation that we have because we're going to, you know, we'll trim a couple things and, and we might condense some stuff or, or erase a couple goofs that didn't work probably not which i mean all of our goofs work of course probably not you said at the beginning in, you know, that we case. we maintain an illusion of non-editing which is not an illusion because sometimes <laughs> we don't edit uh if you're doing it right nobody knows you're doing anything at see, all see that's and that's the thing about theater you jerk that's the thing <laughs> You have to create this like facsimile of behavior or else people get all confused. But then if you don't do that, you have to go to such a heightened realm where it's clear that you're not doing real theater, like you're not doing literal realistic theater. And what's really powerful about this play is that all those lines are very, very blurry uh, and Pirandello kind of juggles it really well. But, you know, I do shows now where it's like, well, I, I... the character is like this real person, but the script is like jumping back and forth through time and doing all this crazy stuff. And how do I make that fridge act like a real fridge? But then there's people like two feet away trying to ignore their cell phone buzzing. Like theaters, sometimes it's dumb. Just gonna say the, f- mm-hmm. the whole artifice of it sure. is dumb. And this, this play is kind of calling that out while also trying to connect that dumbness to some essential human dumbness i guess right. Mis- mr dumbness <laughs> mr dumbness <laughs> nice that's a good narnia reference yeah we'll go out on that how abouts all right all right mr dumbness mr dumbness um if 
if you're a listener in search of someone to read your emails, you can send them to us at overduepod at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter feed at twitter.com slash overduepod and a Facebook page at facebook.com slash overduepod. It seems like we're getting like a dozen or so likes a week what? now on that page. Like they're they're kind of trickling in at a real steady rate, which I like a lot. And, and Part of the um, reason for that is because people are actually being really wonderful advocates for the show on social media. I want to thank Igor and Lee and Sean and Tracy and Megan, who found that article I was talking about on Grantland, and Aaron, who thought we should do a live nice. show, and Eric, who gave me that book for the last episode two weeks ago, and Terry and Charlie, who liked our goofy voices, and Robert and Nicole, who were retweeting our tweets, and Amber, and someone whose Twitter name is I Am Telling, and... Uh, someone <laughs> whose name is Tom and Miguel. Uh, people have been giving us shout-outs on the internet, and it's a great way to introduce the show to new people. Andrew, if they wanted to send new people somewhere on the internet where they could find more about the show, where would they go? Uh, they would go to OverduePodcast.com. Um, up there we have um, iTunes links, RSS links, Stitcher links, a whole bunch of different places where you can subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, there are places to uh, give us a star rating and to uh, write a review of the show. And, and we always appreciate when people do that because it helps us out in the rankings and it just generally makes us feel good. Um, up on the website, we also have Amazon links to the books that we have read and that are, we are reading and that we are going to read. If you click those links and buy the books, it gives us a little bit of a cut and it helps support the show and um, and pay for our hosting costs and our book costs and, and that kind of stuff. Like I've said for the last couple of episodes, we are planning something a little bit different to help with, uh, with raising funds that I think we are going to be ready to launch next week. I don't want to commit us to anything we're not ready Who for, knows? but I think we'll be there. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And I don't know. I'm just so flattered that it takes so long to recite the list of people who got in it's touch really with us nice. over it's a, a given really week. It's really fun. It's really cool. Uh, Andrew, do you want to? Do we want to say what we're reading for next week? Do we? Is the cat next out of the bag? Is our next week is our 100th episode? Okay. And if you gone back to 2013 or whatever. And asked me if I thought that this would last this long. I don't know that I would have agreed. I would have said yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been great, and I never want to stop. So for episode one hundred, what is what what is a hundred divided by two? Craig six. You asked me did you numbers a, earlier, and I said six. So six. No, what is 100 divided by 2? I know that you're an arts person, but just try and try and do this for me. <laughs> okay, so uh, 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. What is a book that we've read with the word 50 in it? Are you telling me I have to read more Fifty Shades of Grey? I'm telling you that we are both going to read book 2. In the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy next week, it's going to be really good. And it's just everybody should just get ready because we've already started reading it. Fifty Shades Darker. Already started reading it. We're already suffering. And we just we cannot 
wait to bring this to you and talk about it in a place where you can hear about it? I'm just thinking about the book, I'm currently nauseous and maybe a little turned on. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like that pretty much all the time. Um, okay, so next week we'll be back. Episode 100, Fifty Shades Darker. Um, if you want to listen to the first show, uh, that's our 50th episode, of course. That's Fifty Shades of Grey. We're both going to be listening to that so we do not just repeat ourselves, which I think would be... I think we're at risk. Oh yeah, we are because this, this book this repeats book is itself. Definitely just repeating itself. <laughs> so come back next week. It's going to be a really fun time. Everybody, until then, try just try desperately to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>